0: Welcome back to Paris, where we're at the halfway stage of Roland Garros and a fascinating week it's been, both on and off the court. I'm Chris Bowers and joining me is my fellow Radio Roland Garros commentator Eleanor Preston.
1: Good first week, El? Absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Chris. I mean, I I really enjoyed last year's Roland Garros. It was wonderful, but it's quite nice to be warm and have sunshine and not worry about having to put your puffer jacket on when you go outside. So it's a lot more like normal service has resumed here in Paris. Yes, you
0: can feel that the players are happier as well. And it's not just the puffer jacket. It's the puffer jacket on three layers, which it was last September October. The big off-court talking point of the week, one which has made the mainstream news in many countries around the world, is the withdrawal of Naomi Saka a day after winning her first round singles match. This followed concerns that she voiced about struggles she's been having with her mental health and all of us at ATP Tennis Radio wish her all the strength and support she needs to deal with her current issues. As recently as February on the ATP Tennis Radio podcast, we brought you a special programme focusing on the issue of mental health, as we were joined by Tanasi Kokinakis and Robin Soderling. They talked about their own struggles, very movingly. Now, it would be totally wrong of us to focus too much on Naomi Osaka's personal issues. We don't know all the details, and they're private matters anyway. But one of the topics that her withdrawal did bring up is the subject of the players' need to deal with the media, particularly in interviews and post-match press conferences. I sought the views of someone who's been in both situations, as a top player and a member of the media, the former world number one and two-time Roland Garros champion, Jim Courier. And I began by asking Jim whether he recalled the same tensions in his career that had been raised in the past week.
2: Well, from my personal lens, I had a, uh, at times, combative relationship with media. Uh, I had some articles that came out early in my career where I was attacked, I thought, uh, needlessly. And, it, and unfortunately, I threw some of the some of the babies out with the bathwater and, and wasn't mature enough to manage that at 20 years old, 21. And, and obviously, as you get older, you get a broader perspective and you start to understand that you can't paint everyone with the same brush. So that's my personal lens. And, and I have a much broader lens now, having... Been around the sport uh, at the professional level now for a long, long time. Seen a lot of people come and go through it. Uh, understood as someone who owns a Champions Tour in America, also how the the whole business of tennis works and and what uh, all the cogs and the wheels mean for it. So I, I think I have a much more bro- a broader appreciation for all of these relationships and how important each and every one of them, including the media and and the interactions with the players and the press, are to to tell the stories that hook people into the sport
0: which begs the question then do we need to encourage both the players and the media to have a more constructive relationship or when the media is always chasing a story that will maybe do tennis good in terms of exposure but maybe tough on players is that just something that the players have to suck up
2: well chris i, I think as you and i were just discussing off air there there are there are different types of relationships with different types of media and and everyone that comes into this sphere from a media lens has their job and and they have their need to fulfill their obligations but there are different types of of media they're there the media writers like yourself who follow the sport year-round who the players know and they trust and they know that you understand their scenario because you've been following it and and then you often times have people who write for uh, the New York Daily News and their only assignment on tennis is the US Open and they come into that with a lens of speaking to a broad sports audience and trying to educate them and they don't know if a player's been struggling or going through ups and downs um, to the degree that someone like yourself will so it, it, there's not the trust levels the questions aren't as detailed or as relevant but it is also part of broadening the audience too so it, it's not necessarily perfect but it is something that that still needs to happen for tennis I think to reach a broader audience And the
0: players clearly benefit from that. And yet, when they show aptitude for hitting a tennis ball backwards and forwards across a net, they don't automatically choose to be public figures whose every word is hung off by the media. So how do we encourage the players to feel less threatened by both one-on-one interviews and also the the theatre-like press conference, which has clearly raised issues this week in terms of mental health.
2: Well, the idea that I've had for quite some time now, as far as educating the young players before they have leverage, before they have the ability to say no to a lot of things, when players come onto the tour, myself included, we'd all give our left arm to be in a press conference because that means we've done something, that means we're on the tour, we're in the show. I think that as part of your education as a tennis player, if I was Andrea Gadenzi, I would say, okay, when you make it into the main draw as an ATP player for a tournament, for each of your first seven tournaments that you qualify for, whether it's a wild card or direct entry if you win challengers or however you get in, every time you play in a tour event, the first seven times... The next tour event you go to, you owe a service day to that tour on one of your off days. And you need to go sit at the transportation desk and pick up the phone and shadow the people who take those calls, understand how transport works. You need to go follow the sponsorship manager of the tournament, understand those relationships and what they're trying to manage. Go sit in the ticket office and take calls of people trying to buy tickets and understand the consumer and the problems they may have and the complaints they may have. And, of course, go sit in the media room and go sit on press conferences and then go back behind the curtain where the press go to work and understand what they're trying to achieve. Just so you have – it's like someone whose family owns a restaurant. They don't start – they don't just hand the keys of the restaurant over. They make them work at the register. They make them wash the dishes. They make them a line cook. They make them understand the whole business before they give it to them. And in tennis, it would be great if if I would have benefited greatly from that as a young player. But they
0: do – In their younger days in a restaurant to continue that particular analogy and Roger Federer has told the story about how not only was he a ball boy at the Basel tournament but his mother was responsible for the badges so he had an understanding from an early age should that perhaps not happen at
2: junior level rather than when a player is already winning tournaments well, that, that's why I think you make it part of your criteria to play in your next main draw. You have to have a service day in front of that for each of your first seven. That's my idea, and I think it's a good one. I think that that would give players an understanding of, of how the, the tennis world works, how the business of tennis works, and how everyone who works in different areas of the sport contribute and makes it possible for them to play a, a game and make a lot of money to do so. Um, not everyone will catch on that, but it, I think it could help soften a little bit the edges around what can sometimes be an antagonistic relationship between some players and, and media. It happens at times that there are, are certain aspects of the media that are, are, are trying to get clicks, and they are trying to create a story, and they are trying to kick up the hornet's nest and see what flies out. and And for players who... Uh, again, speaking through my own lens, uh, are oftentimes very immature as they come out onto the tour and they don't really have a handle on on uh, what happens outside of their own little personal space uh, because it's an individual sport. It's helpful to kind of understand all that, but that you're never going to get perfect. But I think it, it is important to continue to be able to tell our stories that, that come from outside of our lens. Social media can only go so far. It's, you know, social media, people put out uh, a perfect world to the world. They don't put out the real story. It's interesting you should say that because a lot of the focus this week has
0: been on whether the, the press, the media, are hostile towards players. And yet a, an issue that was raised a couple of weeks ago on social media, as it happens, by the veteran writer and historian Richard Evans was that actually the players need the media to know them better because it's a much harder job to write a, a derogatory story about a player if you actually know that player. Now, he's, he's not saying he should go back to the days when he would have dinner with John Newcomb and Rod Laver or visit Lou Hode's place in Spain, but that actually we've gone too far the other way that the, the media and the players need to meet a little bit more often just so that the, the media is fairer to the players. Do you see anything in that?
2: Well, I think the relationships do matter and I think there's, there's much more context when you spend more time around people I I don't know that it will be plausible in this day and age, given the the team, certainly not in COVID times. Maybe once we get past COVID times and and we're able to mingle more freely in general, that'll be possible. Um, But I do think that's why the stories that come from people like yourself and from Richard and and from the the people who who live within the sport and they get the depth of the players and and the complexities of them, they're much more nuanced, the stories, and they're not as black and white and and they tend to, to hang a little better than Then, the stories for the from the people who are just doing their jobs, their editor tells them, "Go cover tennis this week, and they're just doing their best. If you had me go cover Badminton or go cover Formula One, I couldn't begin to tell you with any depth of what's happening on television the way that I can in tennis because frankly, and this then this is the truth. All of us up here on, on Broadcaster Row, we're reading all the stories that the writers are writing and learning more about the players, too, even though we may have access to the players. You find out more about their off-court uh, situations through through the deep profile stories where players do give time uh, to someone who will take the time to explore that. Because we we don't get a lot of one-on-one interviews away from the fans, also where you can really go deep with players and find out more. But you always gain more insight when you get time with them. And how do you do that in, a, in an era with COVID where it's impossible? It's tough. COVID's obviously difficult, but.
0: Do you ever speak to 20-year-old players uh, on the subject of, of, of media or anything else? And or What did the 30-year-old Jim Courier say to youngsters based on what the 20-year-old Jim Courier didn't know?
2: My time as a Davis Cup captain, I had access to not just the players playing on the U.S. team, but also our practice partners, which were always the young, promising players coming up. And, and we did spend time with them. Jay Berger was, was my assistant coach for much of that time. Robbie Ginepri as well. So we had experienced people around that would make a point with these players to say listen it's important for you to understand this relationship you, you won't like always um, going it's a part of your job that sometimes is a nuisance especially when you lose but it's part of the job you're a professional you have to go in there and do that and and do it as best you can and and you don't have to look far for good examples the way that Federer and Nadal and and Djokovic and Murray um, in the men's game have been available and been honest and open and giving with the media is is part of the reason that they're so popular
0: The issue of media player relations has been raised this past week but do you think actually it's richer for having been raised and maybe we're overestimating the problem?
2: Look, I don't know that there is much of a problem based on listening to the players respond to the questions when Lafero Saka broke before the tournament all the, the big players who have to do pre- event press they came in and, and they were empathetic with her plight and they understood her plight but they also said very clearly we know this is our responsibility and we have no problem continuing to do press we know it's important for the growth of the sport and it all said it clearly we wouldn't be the people who we are in the world right right today if you didn't tell our stories and while you know the matches happen on the court and they're almost always televised there's a depth to the, to the these people who are, com, are the combatants that we get through these stories that we just can't get from watching them hit forehands and backhands.
0: The views of the ever-thoughtful and candid Jim Courier, who's in Paris commentating for two television stations, the Tennis Channel in America and the British station ITV.
1: Eleanor Preston, some interesting ideas there. Anything particular from Jim strike a chord? I think what's interesting to me is is just how much we as a sport need to serve our players in helping equip them i think from a very early age we've been lucky enough in in my company the amelia group to help tennis europe who run the tennis europe junior tour for 16 and unders with as comprehensive as possible an education program and and we we make it video based so it's accessible easy to understand we've translated it to different languages and we work closely with the wta and the atp in in putting this together and and making sure that it forms part of an education program that will hopefully take players through from their teenage years as they progress through their professional ranks uh, and, and and then link in with the existing education programs that the ATP and the WTA have in place for players who break into the top 100 for the first time. So I think I'm a big believer in, in athlete education. I think it's so important, including the right kind of media training. And we have modules on media and social media as part of that. We also take in... Uh, topics such as nutrition and periodization, and also sponsorship, how to choose an agent, because there's a, a broad spectrum of, of professional skills that, and, and situations and, and realities that tennis players have to deal with. And I think the tours actually, and tennis as a whole, is, is working. More and more closely together to try and deliver those to their players. Jim used that interesting phrase before the players learn to say
0: no. Uh, what age do you think is the best age to really get through to athletes in this athlete education process?
1: I think the idea, the ideal, actually, is to is to see it as a process. You know, when you and I go to school, went to school. It's a very long time ago in both of our cases. But you know, we were treated as a as a human beings on a journey. And, and you start with your elementary education and then that's supplemented by your high school education and onto higher education. And I think the concept behind the Tennis Europe Junior School is actually the same idea, that you start with a basic education and understanding you know, basic concepts in some cases in simple, understandable, accessible language. And then as players progress, the the next stage of education picks up on what they've learned already and builds on that knowledge and hopefully complements the experiences that they're having as fledgling professionals.
0: We've moved away from the media part, which is probably good because that's only one element of what we've been discussing this week. And it sort of begs the question, to what extent is tennis an obligation to those players who are struggling with the peripheral sides of the the sport, which tennis might not be fully embracing at the moment?
1: I I think tennis is, is... embracing the the need to help players particularly with their mental health and I think you know I I think both tours and and all the organizations in tennis are actually acutely aware and and actively trying to to provide as much support as possible for mental health You, you mentioned the previous podcast we've had on ATP Tennis Radio specifically focusing in on what the ATP is doing I know the WTA has a has an extensive program of mental health support for its players and 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 I think it's about equipping players with the skills to understand the importance of mental health and to treat it like physical health. You know, as tennis players, they're constantly told, well, if you've got a sore knee, don't just ignore it and play through it. Go and see a physio, have a talk to them, get it treated. And I think it's about understanding and and getting players to understand that you need to also treat your mental health like that. If you have a niggle, if you're feeling anxious, if you're not sleeping, if your worries are cascading, that... Here are, the, here are the things to do, here are the steps, here are things you can do to make it better. And if it's not better and you need more help, it's okay to go and get that help. And I, and I think that one of the modules of, of this video education program we've talked about and one we're working on at the moment with the tours is on mental health. So it's understanding from the age of, of 16 uh, or younger than that, actually, that mental health is a spectrum, that, that you may have a range of uh, different feelings, and, and it's okay not to be okay. And in an era where a lot
0: of young people uh, do a lot of their communicating through social media, whether one views that as a, a good medium or a bad medium, to what extent does the ATP's association with the Headspace
1: app uh, form part of that? I think it's really important, I think, because what Headspace does is provides strategies for how to deal with mental health issues. So, you know, if, if you're feeling anxious, here are some different things you can try to make yourself feel better uh, and so I, but I think it's it's one element of, of an overall program and, and most importantly the message to centre players you know everybody goes through moments where they're struggling to varying degrees not everybody goes through the the kind of horrible experience and the and sort of depression that certain players, Robin Soderling being a good example that you mentioned, Rebecca Marino on the women's side who, who, who've suffered what, what might be looked at more as a clinical depression but most players and, and most human beings go through moments in life where they, they're dealing with some form of, of not being okay and, and so it's about educating players that just because you're a tennis player and you have to show that you're invulnerable and you have to show positive body language all the time that it's also okay to say I'm feeling a bit wobbly today. Well, maybe
0: it's no bad thing that this issue has been raised, and no one can certainly now say that they're not aware of it. On iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn,
1: and ATPTour.com, this is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast.
0: Let's move on to some other topics, and one of them appears to be the fixation on numbers, specifically the number of Grand Slam titles won. Serena Williams is going for a record-equalling 24th major singles title. Rafael Nadal is looking to set a new individual record of 21 major titles, as indeed is Roger Federer. So what is success these days? I mean, Does it have to come down to numbers?
1: No, I don't think so. I don't think Serena Williams is going to be any less of a player at, at her retirement if she doesn't tie or even beat Margaret Court's record of, of 23 Grand Slam titles in singles. I, I think she's still an extraordinary player with a magnificent career and, and arguably the greatest tennis player we've ever seen. So, But at the same time, I think numbers are part of the fun, aren't they? You know, they're, they're a way that we can have these sort of friendly arguments about who's better and who's the GOAT. Well, he's won 20 and, well, he's won...
0: But, you know, one of Rafa's sponsors came to me and said, uh, oh, we'd love him to win Roland Garros because uh, no one say he's the greatest. And I said, well, yeah, but there may be other factors as well in all that. And I suppose they want to sell more of their products on the back of um, their player's success, which is fair enough. But uh, I actually feel that there's a lot more to it than that. And, uh, you know, there are plenty of other factors. I think status beyond... The game, I think, is very important. The way they conduct themselves. I mean, we have this remarkable generation of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. We could perhaps throw Andy Murray in there because he held with them for many, many years. But you know, they were all first-rate human beings. So in many ways, I think they've set great standards in that respect. Um, But for me, I don't think you should just go on the numbers because that's taking out some elements that define greatness that are more than just numerical.
1: Oh, absolutely. And you also get into the very tricky business of comparing eras, which tends to undermine the whole argument about who's the greatest and who isn't the greatest. Well, it undermines it and it feeds it at the same time. I, I think that the obsession with numbers perhaps started with Pete Sampras, actually, and, and his quest. To, to break Roy Emerson's record and that's where I think it became a bit of an obsession with the media quite understandably because it's a it's kind of straightforward simplistic measure isn't it if you say well he's one more then he's one more and he's got to get one more and, it, and it's a way of simplifying something very complex and I think you're right I think marketability I think impact on the sport I think uh, there are all sorts of other measures that come into play which are much more than just a number I mean, it's
0: a subject that I've discussed. Forgive me mentioning my own book, but you know, my biography of Roger Federer. The whole of the last chapter is given out, uh, given over to discussing, you know, what criteria can you throw in. It's meant to stimulate discussion in the tennis club bar or the or wherever one discusses tennis matters. Um, and I think it's important that we bring in different elements, including the status outside tennis. I mean, if you go around the world and you mention. Um, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, Serena Williams, how much does that actually score with people outside tennis? And in a way, Serena Williams has perhaps achieved as much as Billie Jean King did, not so much for women's tennis, but for uh, breaking down racial barriers, given the change that's come across um, not just women's tennis, but the whole of tennis, since she and Venus broke onto the circuit. Uh, Whereas, you know, Djokovic has become a hero in a part of Europe that didn't really have many champions. Nadal, um, a Spaniard winning Wimbledon, uh, that was massive as well. So for me, there's got to be a whole range here. Plus there's got to be things for Williams and Federer to play for, even if they never win another major.
1: I agree. It's a bit like the rankings, isn't it? We, you know, we love the rankings. It's really important. We have a system of measuring, and, and we all look at them every week. But you and I know that when we watch a tennis match, the rankings only give you some guide as to how good both players are. There's all sorts of other factors come into play. Otherwise, it'd be really boring, wouldn't it? Because all, if automatically the higher-ranked player was going to win every match against the lower-ranked player... And what would be the point of being here?
0: Sure. But the rankings actually, what they show is consistency because they were invented as a fair entry system to tournaments. And therefore there are players like Del Potro who even after he won his US Open title, never got into the top three. He eventually did get into the top three, but, uh, was, uh, his best ranking was four because he couldn't play consistently throughout a year. And then you get players. Um, there's one in the men's and three in the women's. Marcelo Rios is the men's champion who never won a major. Um, but because of his consistency across the year, was ranked world number one. Now, does he warrant a place? Does longevity make a factor? I mean, uh, many people of a certain age will remember Jimmy Connors's run to the U.S. Open semifinals at the age of thirty-nine. Well, what happens if Federer makes the semis of a major? Um, you know, it would be, it would add to the legend, and therefore you could make out the case that anybody, you know of the group we've been talking about, is the greatest of all time, without them necessarily having won the most Grand Slam titles.
1: I'd even go a bit further than that and say, why do we need to declare one of them the greatest? I always say, in the current era we have in men's tennis, we don't just have one goat, we had a herd of goats. And aren't we lucky? Yeah. And, and sometimes comparison can be the thief of joy, can't it? Absolutely. We're so busy comparing them, but actually... What we should be celebrating is that we have in Djokovic, Nadal and Federer in particular, these three different personalities, different styles of tennis, different ways of being, coming from different places and actually that is much better than just having one single unassailable goat that nobody can argue about.
0: On that very positive note, we'll move on to another topic and this year we've had the first scheduled night matches at Roland Garros. Um, it's been hard to judge how good they've been because with the immense bad fortune of coinciding with the curfews. Um, they went ahead with them because they'd signed deals with various broadcasters for them and you know, given the amount of money that uh, the French Tennis Federation have spent on the facilities at Roland Garros, they clearly need to get their money back. But they... Um, it, it means that we can't really judge the spectacle yet. Well, there's been actually one or two matches where I thought this would be just an amazing spectacle if only there was a crowd there.
1: We all know that that tennis is is blessed in the in some of the amazing night match atmospheres it can create. U.S. Open, Australian Open, even matches that go before the 11pm curfew at Wimbledon where everybody knows you're under time pressure and and, and that actually creates an, an extra buzz around the place and I'm sure we'll get that here I'm sure we'll get that here in the latter stages of next week once people are allowed in hopefully if things progress as, as they have been here in France so uh, yeah I agree I mean the other way of looking at it and, and I think this for me this was true during the US Open last year where the whole event was behind closed doors for tennis purists and and tennis nerds, let's face it, like you and I and probably one or two of our listeners, it's actually, in some ways, really interesting just to focus on pure tennis, because I don't think the tennis has been any less good than it would have been had there been a crowd there. I think we've seen some high quality matches and some high quality hitting, because the reward is still the same. You don't get applause for it, but the end game is still the same.
0: And just as in some other sports like, say, football and rugby, you hear players shouting to each other far more than you ever would because they're drowned out. I found it fascinating listening to some of the comments that have been made in the night matches. Tennis Sandgren, when he was uh, out playing Djokovic, he was uh, making all sorts of comments and uh, not not all reflect that well on him, I think, because he was uh, getting into a pretty foul mood.
1: I think it was it was almost like having an extra commentator, wasn't it? Just a constant commentary on the match, and I really actually enjoyed some hearing more clearly some of the discussions with the umpires, and not necessarily arguments. But but Roger Federer got into a conversation with the umpire uh, in his second round match about uh, talking about uh, because he was warned for taking a little bit too much time, and and he explained very reasonably and not in an argumentative way at all that actually. He was coming back to the tour after a long break and he wasn't used to the Covid protocols of having to cross the court to go and fetch his towel. And, and we wouldn't have known that because we probably wouldn't have heard what Federer and the umpire were saying to each other. And that's a whole insight into the experience of a Federer coming back, which we wouldn't have had otherwise.
0: Do you think that the night session is going to, very quickly, when, when there's crowds allowed in, be, can, become a, a tradition of Roland Garros?
1: Absolutely. I think in normal times, you walk around Paris in the evening and there are, you know, full tables outside bistros and and people chatting to each other. And I think the night matches will take on some of that Parisian nightlife atmosphere. And I I absolutely think they will become celebrated and, and part of the tradition. And, you know, we know that each of the slams has their own personality, has their own atmosphere. And the night matches are true of that as well. And I think we will see you know, a, a warmth and, and also the French crowd does love to get involved. Can you imagine, a, you know, a fifth set in a night match here with a French player and, you know, a line call goes against them or something happens? I mean, it's going to be absolutely fantastic.
0: Well, we look forward to that, hopefully from next year when the crowds come back, that we have to be patient with the, uh, the progress of the pandemic. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast with Eleanor Preston and me, Chris Bowers. Coming up next, we'll take a look at some of the potential talking points and players to look out for in week two of Roland Garros. You're listening to the ATP Tennis
1: Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, and ATPTour.com.
0: Let's have a look ahead to the second week of Roland Garros now. Uh, Slightly difficult for us to do so because we're recording this after the first seven days of the tournament and you never know who might have gone out by the time some people get to listen to this. But who's impressed you in the first week and why?
1: Well, I'm going to stick my neck out and say uh, Mr Djokovic has played rather well. Mr Nadal, I don't know if you're aware of his work, he's got some form here on the clay. But yes, I mean, without being flippant, I think... Nadal in particular is looking fairly terrifying um, as of today we've just seen him play Cameron Norrie who, who played reasonably well and was made to look as though he was playing quite badly uh, and there's the history of tennis here at Roland Garros in particular is littered with people who are probably felt like Cameron Norrie is feeling right now um, he's got Yannick Sinner next, so we'll see this it doesn't get any easier from here on in I mean I think we've seen some surprise elements I think Alexander Zverev actually is playing very well. Um, the, the person I think most of the focuses away from the big three, if you like, is on Stefanos Tsitsipas, who who I think has played very well, a very high standard. He's maintained the standard that he's set actually throughout this year. He's very much the informed player of the season, I would say. And I think he's played in quite a controlled way, in which he's He's actually lifted his game and lifted his level of emotional commitment when he's needed to. But the rest of the time, actually, he's been fairly contained and I've I've been impressed with him.
0: I agree with you about Djokovic. I think Djokovic is actually looking as good at Roland Garros as he has since 2016 when he won the title. last couple of years, he seemed slightly overplayed coming in. I mean, last year was unfortunate because he just had the disqualification at the US Open. He played Rome and won it, but without looking particularly impressive. And then he had a couple of long matches before he went and uh, met... Uh, an absolutely red-hot Nadal in the final. The, the player who's jumped out at me this week is Daniel Medvedev. And and I think, in a way, it's almost like he's playing with house money. I think he's never won a match here. He's has won matches on clay in the past. It's not that he can't play on this surface. And I was watching him practice last year, watching him with Gilles Savara, and thinking, my goodness, you speak good French. You actually sort of look French from your body language when you're practicing. Um, he ought to be at home at Roland Garros. Why has he never won a match? This year, he goes and wins one in his first round against Bublik, looks very comfortable. And since then, the two matches he's played when we're recording this, he's been absolutely relaxed. And the way he took Riley Apelka apart was was stunning. Now. It could blow up at any minute he could get into a, a difficult spell in any of his matches uh, from here on in and suddenly um realize you know oh this is why i hate the place but actually his encore interview after the uh, after the opelka match was wonderful he's spoken spoken really fluent idiomatic french getting into a bit of banter with fabrice santoro and on the basis that you know playing without expectations playing loose and of course Playing like he's on a hard court doesn't seem to be as big an obstacle as it was 20, 30 years ago, uh, even when you're on slippery clay. I just think we shouldn't write him off. And if he hits it about in the quarterfinals, that could be wonderful.
1: I definitely wouldn't write him off. I think the conditions have helped him a bit. It's hotter this year, as, as we've said. You know, that will help his game. That will help his sense of confidence on this surface. And I I agree, I think think it's 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 amazing how much confidence and mindset matter. It's almost as if he arrived here, played the first couple of sets and the penny dropped with him that, that actually he can play on play and there's no reason why his game can't translate well. I almost think, irrespective of what happens from here on in, this has already been a really important week in the context of Medvedev's career because I think... When he comes back here next year even if he doesn't win another match when he comes back here next year his mindset will be different he's made the fourth round and i think that has opened up a whole world of possibilities for medvedev here at roland garros
0: yes and i think he's uh become a fan's favorite here you know he had to win over the crowd in new york after that uh, rather fractious relationship that he developed um when that year he got to the final against uh, Nadal, but you know his uh, ability to speak french his french coach the fact that he's based in monte carlo i think really does score with the the paris crowd um, I still th- I still feel we're waiting for our first really pulsating match there are two matches from the first week that stand out for me one was the battle of the Italians um, Cecchinato and Mazzetti and I'm so pleased to see Mazzetti doing well because I find him such an exciting player and it was interesting that although that was a little like a piece of the Foro Italico at uh, Roland Garros um, the, most of the fans were very much for Mazzetti who I think is the player with the the broader game and I just think what whatever happens to him for the rest of this tournament, he has really got something out of this. And the other match was the five-setter that uh, Alejandro Davidovich Fakina won over Kaspar Ruud. For a start, I didn't expect it. I thought Ruud would win that one, especially after he took the second and fourth sets, emphatically. And the first, third and fifth were won by Davidovich Fakina on real marathon sets. But I also think it shows not only something of the coming of age of Davidovich Fakina, but also the fact that... Playing slightly fewer matches in the run-up to Roland Garros can sometimes be an advantage. I'm beginning to wonder whether Kasparud might have slightly overplayed.
1: Well, I think it it, it can happen. It can happen particularly to players on their way up as they try and work out how to fit their schedule. Some players like to play a lot of matches. Some players prefer to have a bit more rest going into slams and, and, and maybe Kasparud is still trying to work out what suits him and... You know, for these players, and Muzetti is is another example of this, every time they step onto a court at this stage of their career, it's a learning experience. It's part of their development. It's another step forward, even if it feels like a step back because they don't win a match. It's actually a step forward, and and they're absorbing everything that that is going on around them. And and I agree, I think Muzetti's got a lovely game. I'm not surprised he's a crowd favourite because he's got a very pure game that's easy on the eye we mentioned the italians um i suppose we ought to mention the french as well the
0: french have had such a good program they've got such a good setup at roland garros which is their national tennis center and yet they're going through one of those slight slumps and for the first time in the open era they didn't have a player in either men's or women's singles in the third round do you think they're doing something wrong or do you think that this is just the fluctuations that inevitably come with a highly competitive individual sport
1: I think it's a fluctuation. I think the other thing that's happening in men's tennis in France is that you have an extraordinarily talented group of players of a particular era who are reaching the end of their careers. I'm thinking of course of Jo-Wilfried Zonga, uh, Richard Gasquet who is, you know, in the twilight of his career, Gael Monfils obviously, <laughs> Gilles Simon and 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 that group of all of a similar age are all reaching the point of no return at the same time and and it's taking a while perhaps for the younger players to come up behind them I think also probably that, that at Roland Garros the French fans in some ways have been spoiled by the French success that's happened here I mean we always have to remember that in any Grand Slam a proportion of the home players are wild cards, which means that they're playing hugely above themselves and I think you know, in, in order to achieve... So any match they win should be considered a bonus, not a right. I'm thinking, of course, of someone like Hugo Gaston, who, who really lit up Roland Garros last year, and, and he was wonderful to watch, but he was not expected to win the matches he was winning. He wasn't expected to, to, to be the star of the tournament. So there's that as well. You're going to get great years, and you're going to get years where the results are a little bit more disappointing.
0: And in terms of the culmination of the tournament next weekend, what do you think would be the best outcome both for men's tennis and for Roland Garros? Nadal winning a 14th uh, Roland Garros title and a 21, 21st major, or someone new coming through to take the title, or Djokovic beating him in the semifinals or or what what do you think would be good for men's
1: tennis? I actually think all of those outcomes would be fine for men's tennis because I I think you have to accept whatever tennis throws at you, and, and and I think all of those things are worth celebrating in different ways. I think somebody new breaking through, even if it's to reach a final, you know, would be interesting and a talking point, and and would mark a breakthrough for them and and, and for the sport. At the same time, you know, the, the current golden period that we've been in with men's tennis, with Nadal and and Djokovic and Federer, isn't going to be around forever. If we get, you know one of those three through to the final we should celebrate that because it's it's a limited offer that we must take up to be able to watch these players at the peak of their powers in a grand slam final
0: and yet i remember the women's final of 1999 where we had almost like a clash of two eras when graf played hingis 12 years between them hingis at the top of her powers but graf also back and that was something very, very special, both as a tennis match and as a piece of theatre. And I wonder whether one of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and it's likely to be Nadal or Djokovic, against Sitsipas or Medvedev would be one of those sort of intergenerational contests that would provide us with a, both a great final and also something that would be fascinating in discussing years to come, um, given that you do have two different generations reaching their peak.
1: I think if we get a tenth of the drama that was in that 1999 final, I will be absolutely delighted as a spectator. Because um, although Martina Hingis may not remember it with great fondness, it was it was actually an extraordinary occasion it was, yes. and, a, and a moment of, of tennis history that obviously we're still talking about now. I mean, I think with Tsitsipas in particular, Medvedev obviously has been a finalist at Grand Slam level. For Tsitsipas to make a final, I think that would be a big moment for our sport. I think obviously that would be a huge moment for him. And I think it's well within the possibilities.
0: I just have a sense that the best match of the tournament could be a Djokovic-Nadal semi-final. I'm thinking back to 2013 when they played a five setter, nine, seven in the fifth, after Djokovic had led 4-1 with a double break. Anything remotely approaching that would be wonderful.
1: And I think they may have to start that in the day session and just run it all the way through to the night session and possibly book in a sort of post-midnight session as well.
0: Which would have to be without fans because the latest the curfew will go to is 11 o'clock at night.
1: Eleanor, thank
0: you very much indeed. Don't forget you can hear Eleanor Preston and me on the live Radio Roland Garros channel, which is being rebroadcast on ATP Tennis Radio, available via the listen button on atptour.com. That's top right on the ATP website homepage or through the TuneIn Radio app. I'll be back next week for the podcast that rounds up events from Roland Garros as well as looking ahead to the grass court season. I'm Chris Bowers. Thank you for listening and enjoy the tennis. We'll be right back. back.